Thank you for joining IAB There. And now your host, Brad Behrens. Over to you, Brad. Hi, everybody. I'm Brad Behrens, Editor-in-Chief here at the IAB. Thank you so much for joining us today on IAB There, our regular live stream show where we connect the digital advertising community and talk about what matters to all of us. Once again, thank you for joining us. It's July 21st. We have a two-fold interconnected topic today. We're going to be talking about IDFA, which is Apple's identifier for advertisers. They made some significant changes to that in the Worldwide Developers Conference a couple of weeks ago. We have two experts coming on to talk about what those changes are and why they matter to you. We'll also talk with one of them afterwards uh, about the sort of incredible world of gaming, the changing consumer behavior around gaming, both in terms of general trends, but also what we call the great acceleration, which is being caused by the uh, coronavirus pandemic. Uh, I'm delighted to be joining, uh, our, have our two guests join us in a moment. But first, if you have questions, you can pose them to us on Twitter. In order to ask a question of our guests about IDFA or about gaming, please post it to Twitter using the hashtag IAB there, all caps, one word. Once again, IAB there, all caps, one word. Our guest today first, Matt Barish. Matt is the SVP of Strategy and Business Development at Ad Colony. And our second guest is Alex Cohn. Alex is a Senior Director of Product Management at IAB Tech Lab. Uh, thank you both. I think we have Matt. Matt, welcome to IAB There. Alex, thank you for joining us. And I'll be there, both of you. So let's talk. Let's, uh, let's go to Alex first. You have a white paper coming out about this, I think, later this week. It'll be available on IABTechLab.com. What is, I, I mean, I, we know that it stands for Identifier for Advertisers, but what is it? Yeah, so thanks for having me, Brad. Um, so the IDFA is really. If you think about what sort of the, the cookie has been for web, IDFA is for iOS devices. So that's iPads, iPhones, other iOS-based devices. And what it does different than a cookie today is it stays with the device. So um, if you think about the things that, uh, you know, the range of business activities that advertisers might partake in, anything from frequency capping where you need to know the same sort of device over and over again to measurement, attribution, um, and segmentation. All of those things uh, key off of this unique uh, identifier, the, the IDFA, if you will. And, and Google has an equivalent called a, a ad ID. Um, so you'll often hear people refer to mobile ad IDs. Um, and this is kind of synonymous with IDFA. So what are the changes that Apple announced at the Worldwide Developers Conference a couple weeks back? Yeah, so the, the key changes, I think, for digital advertising are uh, a couple. So um, I think the one that's getting the most airtime is that app developers will now need to um, use a, a new function that, that Apple has said you have to build. I think we lost Alex. So uh, while he's uh, not, while we get him back from buffering, Matt, let's bring you into the conversation. Uh, why did why did these why did Apple make the changes? You think, and why do they matter? So sure, they're, they're they're big changes. They're remarkable. Uh, why do they matter? Well, you know, I think for the first time, um, you know, Apple has really uh, massively redefined their position in the mobile advertising space. Uh, and welcome back, Alex. Um, 
I'm so, sorry, I think uh, we're getting having some technical difficulties. Matt, please continue. So, so, so the, um, the, the, the changes that will be made will be uh, significant in that Apple will, number one, become the arbiter of all things attribution. And so they will work directly with uh, SK Ad Network certified vendors to, uh, to, to solve for and to be the source of truth when it comes, for, comes to uh, performance and download and growth uh, attribution for developers. Um, you know, secondly, a lot of the uh, a lot of the change was driven off of the concern around user privacy, and privacy is becoming paramount in today's just uh, overall universal culture. Um, it's part of the, the the conversation, not just within the industry, for the broad popular the broader population. And so, when you look at the two main operating systems being Apple and Google, uh, you know, Apple really took the first step to suggest that user privacy was paramount to them and thus their consumer. Um, a lot of speculation that Google will follow suit. So let me pull this out of, out of uh, the jargon into some, some plain English. Uh, from reading uh, Alex's article, but also Ari Paparo had a wonderful piece in Ad Exchanger, what we're going to be experiencing is, uh, you know, once we, uh, our phones and iPads and Apple TVs update to iOS 14, as you are you working with an app or downloading a new app, uh, a pop-up will happen that asks you, the user, explicitly to opt in to being tracked, which is akin to That's things right. that we saw with location right. tracking earlier. So, Alex, every, is it every time you use an app? Is it only when you install an app? Like, when, when does this permission-seeking by Apple count, uh, yeah. start? Good question. So it's the way that they've uh, laid it out so far in the documentation is that it will happen once when you first open the app and then it won't happen again and there's nothing you can do to trigger it happening again other than to uninstall the app and reinstall it. All right, we're having some echo, at least I'm hearing some echo, I don't know if the audience is. Once again, forgive, uh, forgive us for some technical difficulties. So my question then is, and this, let me, let's go to Matt for this one, and Alex, I'll ask you to respond as well. Matt, who's benefiting from this? Like, why is this happening, and, and who benefits from uh, the, the, the new rules for IDFA? Sure. Well, there's definitely consumer benefit here. Um, you know, they will benefit from heightened awareness. Uh, you know, what consumers will see upon, uh, upon launching an app for the first time once iOS 14 has been installed will look something akin to a nutritional label. It will be a disclaimer that will show all of the functionality that that app is tracking. And I think that awareness is gonna be really important uh, for consumers moving forward. Secondly, um, you know, for better or for worse, the walled gardens tend to benefit. Um, first party data will become more valuable than ever. Uh, it will reign supreme. Certain app publishers, um, some shall remain nameless here, uh, stand to benefit because they can port their app across their portfolio of, you know, of major titles, top 10 titles across the, you know, the app ecosystem. Uh, and then, you know, that network effect will become powerful on behalf of the advertisers who they work with. So who gets hurt by this? Yeah, I think there, there will be some pain inflicted upon long-tail uh, developers. I think that the, if, if you look at the, uh, the app store, you know, there are millions of titles in the app store today. Uh, 
the App Store is largely supported by ad-supported, uh, you know, monetization-driven developers, and you know, many of whom aren't as savvy as and sophisticated as you'd like to believe. So, you know, uh, we hope that there's an education process, and that the industry will help to, you know, drive some uh, some adoption uh, for developers to be savvier to recognize how to get users to receive the value and the value exchange in opting into tracking. And we think that's going to be a huge uh, determinant in terms of how successful uh, the, you know, the, uh, the opt-ins will be and the scale will be for the programmatic ecosystem to be able to dive into it and tap into it moving forward. So value exchange is a phrase we hear a lot, uh, particularly around our conversations around Project Rearc, which is attempting uh, to re-architect the internet to, to balance personalization and privacy to the shortest possible version that I can do. Uh, Alex, when it comes to what Matt just said about the value exchange, you talk about this in your white paper, um, how, how steep a climb is that for app developers? Now, I've seen some estimates that we're going to lose the vast majority of users opting in uh, and allowing applications to track them. So uh, any predictions from you about how serious a problem this is for app developers that really were, do rely on targeted ads for their revenue? Yeah, good question. So, you know, the best data that I think we have to go off of, um, which isn't perfect data, but is data from when Safari implemented um, basically a, a blocking of third-party cookies in, in Safari, and that hit advertising campaigns at about 50% in terms of the, um, the basically the CPMs that they were seeing in, in aggregate. Um, so th there can be there could be a substantial effect. I think one of the things that I think from an education standpoint, as Matt mentioned, you know, we use this, or, or I guess Apple is using this term tracking to sort of bucket everything. And, you know, there's a spectrum of things that a, that a user might actually, if, if given the choice, opt into versus other things. And because it's all being bucketed into one choice, that could result in these, these larger kind of opt-out rates um, that are hard to predict, but could be quite large. So I think yeah. uh, the short answer is a whole lot of impact. Matt, you have something to say, please. please uh, yeah. Yeah, I, I think there's a, there, there's a really interesting use case there with, uh, with a category like weather, right? Location is a really important, uh, you know, we'll call it tracking mechanism for a weather app. Uh, but, you know, if a user is concerned about all of the other trackers, and I, I hate using that term, but, you know, that's what Apple has, has shared. And I think that may be the, you know, the, the word that we use moving forward. But, um, you know, but, but weather apps, for example, they're dependent on location. Uh, if you factor out location, then how relevant is the weather app to the consumer, right? And that's that value exchange that I was referring to. So, you know, the user may see that uh, weather is, you know, uh, a weather app may be looking at or, you know, uh, asking for access into things like their contacts for sharing purposes. Uh, the user may be scared off by that. They may not be, but, you know, ultimately it's value exchange. And it's a question of how does, you know, how important does that user value uh, one aspect relative to the whole kit and caboodle.
Um, I guess my question is, let's talk about the differences in revenue model between Apple and Google. Uh, Apple is not primarily an advertising entity. It's a hardware and software sales company. Uh, a relatively trivial amount of their revenue, given that they're a trillion dollar company, is coming from advertising. So I think a clear reason that they're doing this is to differentiate themselves from the Android uh, hardware manufacturers to say, if you care about your privacy, you're going to go with Apple because we give you a lot more controls. Whereas Google's primary uh, revenue model is advertising. So, you know, they're going to be more interested in servicing the advertisers who are uh, on that platform. Is that a fair account of why Apple's doing this? Alex, why don't we go to you? Um, I think that's definitely one account, and I think it's a credible account. Um, I think one one issue that I, I take with it is that, you know, Apple is only so good on iPhone as is the apps that it has uh, in its store. Um, and if you start running out of apps that are ad supported and you, you actually hurt your app developers, like main revenue source, which in some cases might be advertising, not subscription, then you, you potentially lose some of the network effects. So I, I think that you're generally, generally right. I'm, I'm curious what their sort of projections at, at Apple look like for potential app developers saying, you know what, we're only going to develop for, you know, platforms that allow us to run advertising and be transparent about it in the way that we want to. Um, so that that's one sort of like slightly different take. I think Google's position probably is, is, is as you state it, but um, at the end of the day, one of the things that they benefit from is they, they have the device and they have the advertising network, um, which really, there is no other company um, that kind of fits in that bucket. Uh, so they their incentives are, are very much going to be aligned with advertising, but not necessarily third-party advertising. Right, as we've seen with the deprecation of third-party cookies that are coming, I think, in about a year and, year and change uh, from Chrome, and that's been a, a topic of great interest to us here at the IB since the announcement back in January. Um, let's, let's, let's start to wind up this particular part of the conversation. Um, Matt, um, when it comes to the ecosystem issue that Alex was just articulating, which is, it's a bit a bit heady, right? It's like, it's so we're talking about a longer term implication where the net result of Apple's actions with, uh, with IDFA could be to restrict the app ecosystem on the iOS platform. Ad Colony, we'll get into what Ad Colony does shortly. Ad Colony deals with, with thousands of apps what do you think, uh, how do you feel about what Alex was proposing just now? Yeah, I think, you know, we're, we're still a couple, we're only a couple weeks into this. And when Apple made the announcement at WWDC about a month ago, I think it caught a lot of people by surprise. There was a ton of speculation leading up to the event that Apple was going to deprecate the Mate or the IDFA entirely. Um, they, 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 they threw a curveball. They threw a curveball to an industry that thought it had matured and solved for every possible scenario, except for this opt-in. And so at this point, four weeks in, uh, what we've got is we've got uh, different aspects of the mobile advertising ecosystem trying to make sense of, you know, of, of what, it is all, what does it all mean? You've got 
uh, attribution vendors, MMPs, who today are trying to recognize their value in a world where Apple holds ultimately complete control over the attribution event and postback sending it to the network. Uh, you've got networks realizing that they may have more power and more of an interest in uh, the opportunity to sit between developers and recognizing effective attribution. Uh, you've got uh, device graphs that I think will look a little wonky at first. And you've got this fragmented programmatic marketplace, which will have an iOS ecosystem that works, uh, I think, over the first few months with a highly contextual focus. And then you've got an Android ecosystem that will continue to run, you know, as is status quo until Google decides to do something other than what they have been doing. So, you know, when I look at just the complete chaos and disruption over the past four months, you know, it really runs the gamut. You've got uh, vendors who are, you know, again, making the bold proclamation that the IDFA is dead. Uh, and then you've got vendors that are saying, hey, you know, um, Apple, you know, we'd like, to, uh, we'd like to beg for mercy. Please reconsider. And, you know, let's use GDPR as the guise uh, by which, you know, you should rethink the decision that you've put forth and made public, you know, uh, just a month ago. So, you know, at this point, what you've got is you've got, um, you know, you, you've really got different constituents within the mobile app ecosystem uh, trying to recognize value, trying to prove value, and trying to understand what Q4 and beyond are going to look like. So, you know, when it comes to growth, which is, and the performance space, which is where the app ecosystem has been focused, you know, I think at this point, heading into a bit of a time of uncertainty, you know, you still have app developers spending aggressively to grow their audience base. Uh, but what I think you'll find is you'll find that they will value those users in a different way than they have historically because they won't have as much visibility into things like lifetime value or in-app purchase or you know, the metrics that historically have defined how the performance space within the app ecosystem has run. And so you know, I think there's a little bit of a blind spot there, but I think that's, um, you know, it's really a function of it being really early days. So let's give Alex the last word on, uh, and on responding to what matches and you were nodding vigorously, which is a good sign. And then we'll talk about your paper for a moment before we thank you. Yeah. I'll let you go back to your life. <laughs> yeah, so I, I do agree with Matt in that, you know, we're we're in an early stage to, you know, anyone who's making any bold predictions is someone you might even want to be somewhat wary of because it's it's really hard to say. And I think all of the the inputs that Matt just mentioned are that's why I was nodding. So uh definitely um view it similarly and we'll be super interested to watch it play out and see how we as Tech Lab can help. Well, one way that, Alex, you've already helped is with the, the white paper that should be released this week. You'll be able to find it on www.ivtechlab.com. Uh, Alex Cohn, Senior Director of Project Management at IV Tech Lab, thank you so much for joining us on IV there. I'll see you soon. Um, yeah, thanks, while Brad. we're waiting for Alex, thank you. While we're waiting for Alex uh, to, to leave the stream, I want to give a quick product uh, public service announcement, which is on Thursday, uh, at 3 p.m. Eastern, we have a town hall, uh, which is all about Generation Z. It's called Catching Z's, Gen Z Insights, and How Brands Connect With Them. 
it's going to be very exciting and uh, it's free for uh, particularly for brand folks we'd like you to come uh, and you can learn more about that at www.iab.com events once again thursday at 3 p.m catching z's gen z insights and how brands connect with them matt thank you for hanging out with us today let's talk about ad colony as we pivot away from idfa tell me what ad colony is uh, you know what is it and what's sure. your role there? And thanks so much for having me today. Uh, Ad Colony, which is uh, the company formerly known as Opera Media Works, is a global marketplace. Uh, we create a, an exchange environment where brands and marketers can connect with leading mobile apps, primarily through programmatic means uh, and programmatic channels. We've got a huge SDK footprint globally. We work with about 100,000 different app developers, primarily games, in a number of different categories to help provide well-lit environments that are brand safe for marketers uh, coming out of major holding companies and agencies, as well as direct, uh, to buy into gaming and do so with confidence, the same way that they would buy a traditional media property if they were doing so through you know, any of their, uh, any of their uh, traditional ad tech uh, vendors or partners. So you work primarily, you work exclusively with mobile apps and primarily with games. And I think I have an antiquated notion of gaming and gamers uh, that's largely based on uh, what I watch my kids do and what I watch their friends do. Uh, and and the old kind of the old canards about gamers, you know, being like, uh, you know, guys who have no friends in their parents' basements kind of thing. So you know, you and I talked a few days ago, and you have a much more robust sense of today's gamer. Talk with us about gamers today and why the gamers are an important segment for marketers. Yeah, ga ga gaming is such a vast subject. And, you know, within gaming, there are any number of different categories. You know, I think to your point, the stereotype is... The... Matt, we've lost your audio, so we're going to hold Sorry, on for one moment. Me? There, now we can hear you. Please go on. Thank you. All right. Sorry. Uh, Got to love technology, right? But, um, you know, to, to repeat where I was going, you know, ga gaming is vast. And, you know, I think um, when I first recognized the power of gaming, I was on a New York City subway. I was commuting to work one morning, and I realized that 80% of the people around me were playing Candy Crush or Angry Birds. And, you know, <laughs> they didn't fit the stereotype of who I thought that person would be, right? I thought that person was the console gamer who was kind of, uh, you know, sitting in their parents' basement, right, really hooked on uh, on playing, you know, uh, an NBA title or a shoot-em-up game. What I came to realize was that when I started to think about what appeared in the App Store and what primarily were the biggest, highest-grossing titles at the time, you know, they fell into a couple of different categories. They were word games. They were strategy games. They were action games. And lately, they've been hyper-casual games. And what that does is it lends What's a hyper-casual game? A hyper-casual game is a game that's designed to be uh, consumed in small doses. So it's, uh, it's a game that's, um, you know, looking for a user that has, uh, you know, let's say a five to ten minute user session, but they'll come back with frequency, right? It's highly addictive. And then, uh, you know, you'll play it for a week or two, and then you'll move on to the next one. Uh, they tend to come in um, very similar varieties, which is the themes may change a bit like a slot machine. So uh, hyper casual gotcha. seems tremendous success lately. But you know, really, when it comes to 
who the gaming audience is, highly broad. Uh, it's going to very much uh, vary based on an app by app or category basis. But what we're talking about is, you know, in our studies and our, you know, our findings, we've seen in 2020, we've seen about 52% female, 48% males, uh, very well-educated, high HHI, and generally skew heavy between 25, 54. So, you know, it's really the core consumer that most mass marketers are looking for. 52% female uh, is definitely not what I think of when I think of gamers. So I think this is, I think that, I think I do have that sense of, uh, for mobile gamers, we see, you know, we, we back in the day we used to see women over indexing with puzzle games and snood and words with friends. Is that still your sense uh, in terms of the gender divide? Yeah, again, that, that comes back to different categories. And so, you know, there, there are different, um, there are different titles that we'll work with. Again, we, we, we work with such a broad spectrum with 100,000 different partners that, you know, certain areas and, and certain high profile titles will definitely attract, uh, you know, the, the demographic that you just referred to. So let's talk about coronavirus. Uh, I think I said something like this at the top of the hour, which is that we have, uh, we've seen coronavirus and the quarantine and the economic collapse accelerate a lot of trends that were already there. So we've seen, we saw this in our, uh, the Ivy New Fronts last month, which is that the extraordinary growth of gaming, not gaming, pardon me, there has been growth in gaming, but extraordinary growth of streaming uh, as more and more people stream more and more. And the, the comparative growth of linear TV has been uh, really quite nominal. And so uh, we're seeing uh, earlier trends get bigger, faster, uh, and sooner. What are you seeing in terms of pandemic-related gaming behavior in your data? Yeah, I think, you know, as, as we entered into shelter at home and you started to see people's entertainment options change remarkably quickly, consumer behavior shifted. Sports went away, right? Uh, scripted prime time was paused and people looked to seek refuge in gaming. Uh, some of the you know, observations we had as a company was significantly more uh, discovery. Users were looking for different types of games to play. A lot of users shifted over to their consoles. They've come back to mobile gaming because they're now on the go as life resumes a little bit more normalcy. Uh, but the pandemic was really interesting. You know, I think there were a lot of aspects of the, the media economy and the advertising economy that were hit really hard. The gaming space, not as much because of the performance element and how much the, uh, the app ecosystem is dependent on users looking for titles to play. And so, you know, I, I think there's a huge emphasis on discovery and users looking for a way to connect with their friends and bond over games. Uh, also taking the social component that smart developers have created as part of their product function to allow users to chat, to add video into uh, some of their interactions and, uh, you know, and, and really escape some of the challenging uh, issues there were with, you know, the overconsumption of news or, you know, some of the challenges with social. So, you know, gaming has really provided uh, an escape and gaming will continue to be there uh, where I think developers, you know, they, 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 they got a, they, they were handed a great sandbox in unfortunate times to test with new users, 
test users who you know were foreign to the gaming environment and build products around that that I think we're starting to see developed and starting to release uh, heading into the summer. Well, let me ask you one last question, which is, uh, you know, uh, talk to brands for a minute. Like, if you're a brand marketer and you're interested in branding as opposed to direct response, and most marketers are, are interested in both, but you know, what's the the single piece of advice that you want to give to brands when it comes to trying to connect with gamers, particularly with with gamers, uh, you know, on mobile? Like, what should they know, and what's the biggest mistake they can make? Yeah, I think that's a great question. I think that. You know, the app ecosystem and the traditional ad tech ecosystem were very much bifurcated. The traditional uh, ad tech ecosystem, Lumascape, if you will, was designed around a desktop display environment. The app ecosystem matured and evolved almost on its own. And just over the past few years, there's been uh, remarkable strides made to bridge the gap by traditional ad tech companies who really wanted to dive deep into ad tech and, uh, and the app ecosystem, which wanted to get more involved with brand. And so, you know, we sit at the forefront of that connection. Uh, if I were to talk to a marketer, and when I do talk to a marketer, the first thing I tell them is have confidence in the technology. Realize and recognize that all of the brand safety mechanisms that you believe are paramount to investing with confidence today if you were buying a traditional media company or traditional media property programmatically exist in the app space, whether that be viewability, whether that be concerns around IBT and fraud, all of that can be solved for in a very similar fashion to how you would solve for it if you were buying desktop or display. So, you know, I think that is, um, that's the primary. I think that, uh, you know, it's really important also to go above and beyond that stereotype to patronize mobile users. I think that, you know, historically there's been this belief that mobile user was something that they're not. And I think that as you look across, you know, the demographic and psychographic profiles of the users who are, you know, really embracing mobile and embracing mobile gaming today, you know, they're not what you think they are. They're probably the people who are buying your product. Well, Matt Barish, uh, SVP of Strategy and Business Development for Ad Colony, thank you so much for joining us today on IB There and giving us some insights into uh, the behavior around gaming and also for our uh, IDFA conversation. Thank you so much. Thanks so much for having me today, Brad. All right. Well, did you know that IB There is now also a podcast? You can listen to our entire archive wherever you get your podcasts, and it's not just IB There. On Tuesdays, our IAB Policy Podcast features experts discussing the legal and regulatory developments changing the industry. On Wednesdays, IAB's leaders discuss what's urgent in digital advertising on IAB Real. Go to IAB.com slash podcast to get everything you need. On tomorrow's IAB There, we're excited to welcome IAB's, IAB's SVP of Research, Sue Hogan, and IAB Tech Lab's VP of Global Partnerships and Product Marketing, Orchid Richardson. They'll be discussing the key findings and takeaways from a just about to be released 2020 IAB State of Data report. IAB There is a production of the Interactive Advertising Bureau. Our show today was produced by Connor Healy, Joe Ons, John Ward, and Carrie Villanueva. I'm Brad Behrens, Editor-in-Chief here at the IAB. Thank you so much for watching. Come back tomorrow because if it's 2 p.m. Eastern on a weekday, you know it's time to IAB There. Bye-bye, everybody.